The accomplished sports broadcasters of the past, the late, great David Coleman, immediately comes to mind. Always advised fledglings learning his trade never to sound like a fan during an interview. In introducing my guest today for Extraordinary Tales and Extraordinary Times, I'm working hard not to ignore Coleman's advice. And I have to tell you, it's not going to be easy. So my guest today set and still holds the British athletics records in the 800 and the 1000 metres. She's a double Olympic and Commonwealth champion and multiple medalist at European and World Championships. This includes her incredible double win in the 8 and 1500 metres at the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens, becoming the first Briton in over 80 years to do so. After Olympic success, she won BBC Sports Personality of the Year, European and World Athlete of the Year, and of course was honoured with a damehood from the Queen. Raised by her mum on a council estate in Kent, she pursued a talent at running from the age of 12, becoming mini Youth Olympic champion by the age of 17. However, a month before her 18th birthday, she left professional athletics to pursue her other dream, to be in the British Army. She became an HGV driver and then a physical training instructor before being awarded an MBE for services to the Army in 1998. Her athletic career was overshadowed with repeated injury and disappointment. Recurring physical injuries contributed to periods of clinical depression and self-harm that continued to affect her even in the year of her Olympic double win. Dedicating her career after professional sport to guiding disadvantaged young people, getting their lives back on track by using world-class athletes to engage, enable and empower. She is now a global inspirational speaker an honorary colonel with the Royal Armoured Corps Training Regiment and encourages the same philosophy that she lives by. Nothing is impossible. My guest today is Colonel Dame Kelly Holmes, but Kelly, if I may, I'm so pleased you could join us today. Oh, hello, Seth. Thank you so much. Listen, there is probably only one place to start. And of course, it has to be at the very height of topicality. Um, Many of the, well, I'm hoping many of the people listening to us today uh, are probably unaware that you have been a COVID-19 victim. How are you doing? Oh, gosh, yes, I am. Oh. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the, something to celebrate now or to, <laughs> to wish I hadn't. No, I'm doing much better, thanks, Seb. I did, I did suffer, not as much as so many people. Very lucky, obviously, we know that. But, yeah, I, I was sort of down and out for about two and a half weeks. Um, yeah, extreme body pains, headaches. So, yeah, it wasn't a great time, but I'm through it. So, all good. Well, uh, this must have been a challenge because every time I've seen you, particularly over the lockdown months and pretty much by the hour somewhere uh, on a website, you've been putting people through the most excruciating exercises. So, you must have had to sit out for a bit. Yeah, I did. And that's been quite strange. And also I had, a, a you know, about these operations on my Achilles yeah. and my heel bone in July. So I've had like a four month period, which even though I've, I've kept fit and I've still been taking live classes, I was still taking them with my plaster on, to be fair. Um, but this last, I uh, say, three and a half, nearly four weeks now, I haven't done hardly anything. And it's now driving me insane. So I'm desperate to get myself back um, in the driving seat and back fit. But that must be reminiscent in a way or a, a, a sort of start reminder of the time that, well, you and we've all had out of athletics where you've just been sort of sidelined. It's just frustration, isn't it? That You just can't, you can't do anything physical. It's not even wanting to race. It's just that outlet of exercise. Yeah, it really is. It's just 
you know, keeping fit, it just makes you feel good. And, and as much these days, I have to say, for your head. But, you know, I'm still interacting with people on social media and I'm giving them things to do. So it's still making me feel good. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm getting I'm the power sure off of them. <laughs> uh, listen, if, if we had to start with the topicality, sadly, of, of COVID, there is probably only one place I can start in this conversation. And I have to tell you, I'm trying hard not to be a fan throughout this, although, as you know, I'm a fully paid up member of your fan club. Um, I want to take you back to the obvious uh, point in your career, which was Athens, because I was privileged to watch you compete in Sydney uh, four years earlier. And I know from our from conversations at the time and, and public utterances that you said you were only one injury away from calling it a day, even in the lead up to Sydney. You nicked a magnificent bronze medal. Uh, in the finishing straight. At one point, I thought you were actually going to win the race, but, you know, you just didn't have quite enough petrol in the tank. But I go back to a few weeks before Athens, and I remember, I can't even remember where it was. I was watching you run an 800 metres. And to use sort of horse racing parlance, I've always fancied myself a bit as a, you know, as as a, a predictor of form. And I looked at your run that day and I thought, you know, the basis of good 1500 meter running is 800 meters. You look so confident and so poised during that performance. I thought, hello, we could be in for something very special in Athens. And I had the opportunity as a council member of the IAAF of picking one medal ceremony to be a part of. And I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to take a punt here and go for you in the 800 metres. And and obviously that paid off. But I I guess that's a long-winded intro to say, did you leave for Athens with as much confidence that I felt and just expressed from watching you in in the stand just a week or two beforehand? Well, I think that might have been Crystal Palace because I, I do remember, I, I it was you or somebody had said, you know, they'd seen me race this race. And, you know, going into Athens, we had our holding camp in Cyprus. So obviously that's such a great build-up for any athlete when you go into that holding camp. You're almost into that mindset, aren't you, of, OK, this is something now you've got to start to focus on. And when I was in... Um, when I was in Cyprus, do you know what? Everything just seemed to click. It, you know, because it was the first year in seven that I hadn't had an injury. You know, I'd fallen in the world indoor champs, but I kind of almost blanked that off of my head. So I was just every race I did, I really enjoyed. But the 800, I was winning everything, but I was losing every single 1500 metres that year because I feel like I was putting so much pressure on myself to achieve my ultimate dream, what was to be Olympic 1500 metre champion. After watching you as a 14 year old, I keep saying this is your embarrassment bit, watching you come across and you were my idol. And, um, (laughs) uh, you know, so... Going into... Move on, Kelly. (laughs) You love it, really. Um, (laughs) Going into Athens, I was just in such a different mindset that, do you know what? I have to go out there and believe in myself that I could come back with two medals of any colour. That was all that was in my head, that I'm in the shape of my life. I knew how to race. I knew my opposition. I knew what I could achieve and that I had to go in there and do my best. But you know, winning the 800, you've seen my face, you know what it was like. I was so shocked. I didn't believe ever that I would win an 800 metres. Kelly, Kelly I, can gi- I can give a little bit of flavour here because I was lining up to, I think, give you the flowers at the medal ceremony. And 
you're about to get up onto the rostrum with still with your spikes on. And I had to actually sit you down and physically untie your laces and sort of suggest you might put your road shoes on before you sort of got planted in the top of the, to the rostrum without being able to move. And you were still in a complete state of shock. I, it's one of my treasured memories of, of any athletics event I've ever been to. Oh, and, and you know what? From the other side of that, you know, seeing your hero taking your spikes off, you know, Seb, you had no idea. <laughs> you know, I was equivalent rep the fact that I was going to go out into this rostrum and receive an Olympic gold medal. But then I've got my hero on his knees taking my shoes off. You have no idea. <laughs> well, you've no idea how much... Um... How, how, how much teasing I got from my daughters who'd say to me, Dad, you don't take my shoes off when I come back in the evening. <laughs> no, it was... they, they were very, they were two, in a way, they were races that had significant similarities because my recollection of both those races is you, I mean, you were foot perfect in both. You didn't follow crazy pace at the beginning. You sat in, you just watched from a sensible vantage point and then you just picked up you know, you picked up the pieces um, in in the finishing straight and, and closed the door on some outstanding competitors of your generation. Yeah, and I think, you know, like, through experience, you understand where your strengths are as an athlete, don't you? And you also understand where maybe you've made mistakes in the past. And I feel like for the first time, and maybe I say for the first time, but just because I was in completely in tune with what I wanted to do. I wasn't nursing an injury. I wasn't fighting to get back where your mind is consumed with all of those thoughts that it's all going to go wrong. All I had was... I'm here to race and this is how I need to do it. And so I'd sat down with my coach before and, you know, with my team and said, you know, I feel like how I was um, training in Cyprus was that I was just running even pace running and trying to perfect being as even as I could and as comfortable as I could as an even pace. So realistically, all I did was split up the 815 into 200 metres and try and run as even as I could. And what happened was, you know, I only see it after I've actually run it, you know, when the gun goes in at 800 metres, as you know, you know, you break at the 100 metre mark round the bend. And I was way at the back. And I just remember one split second of my head thinking shit I was so far off the pace but all I had in my head was stay in control stay in control because they're running 25 26 as a woman for 800 meters and I was running sort of 28 29 but I knew I had to run one minute 56 to win a medal so I just all it was is that the the ability to stay composed to what I'd been training for and not let it go wrong in a race, which, you know, when you get to a race, sometimes <laughs> your head just goes all over the place, you know, and yeah, it was it, just that it, I was it, composed. It, we all go into races with tactics and strategies, but the reality <laughs> of it is with eight or nine other athletes, you know, the variables become almost, you know, uh, so unpredictable. But let me, I, I'm fascinated, as you know, I'm always fascinated by the mental side of, of performance and for me the great achievement of your double was not winning the eight and or then going on to win the 15 it was the mental hinterland around that because you of your own volition have admitted that you just went there to get a medal you'd have profound disappointment and injury leading up to that you then win something which you know you've your own words uh, in your book was something you'd been dreaming about for 20 years. 
you then have to not bounce back from disappointment, but bounce back from a lifetime achievement to then do it all over again. And believe me, Kelly, I, I have a, a feel for this. You I tried know. this on three separate occasions and I came one medal short on, on each on each occasion. But you were foot perfect, not just in the races, but I, I sense that you were foot perfect between the races, which mentally is a, a, a massive accomplishment. Definitely. I think, you know, what people don't obviously see is everything else that goes into performance. So they see the outcome on the track. But, you know, once you've done your heats or your semi-final, you've got to go through a process of getting back into the same mindset to come out and do it again. And so actually all I, I, we all talk about being in the zone, but I absolutely believed I was so in tune with everything I needed to do to not let myself down and other people around me that had supported me that I had to stay in there. And just very quickly, you go back to Sydney. So when I won the bronze medal, it was off the back of only six weeks on the track. You know, the rest of it was in a pool and a, a um a gym because I had a 12 centimetre calf tear. So when I went into that and I, I got bronze, which was like, you know, a, like a gold at that time, I'd actually also went and run the 1500 metres. And I got to the final and you know what? My head just went all over the place because all I could think about is I'm Olympic bronze medalist. And I remember my coach at the time, Dave Arnold, was so upset with me, like literally so upset. He said, you could have won another medal, but you lost it because all you were thinking about is the glory of that other one. And I never forgot that. And so when I went into Athens and I was in the shape um, of my that's life. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. And when I went into Athens and I'm, you know, I've won the gold medal and uh, who was it now? Um, oh, gosh, my brain's going to go. Uh, he said to me, who is it who said to me, Kelly, you have just become, you know, one of the best athletes in the world, but if you win two, you become a legend. And I was like, don't even talk to me about that, you know, just show up. But I just kind of, I have to say, the process was I'm going to run the race, get them off the track, give Sally Gunnell my bottle of water, my uh, cashew nuts, because I wanted to refuel and rehydrate as soon as I come off the track. And she was BBC commentator. So I'd come off, <laughs> I'd go through the chicane of, um, you know, TV, and literally I'd planted it on her. And then uh, the team doctor, uh, Brian, uh, at, the, at the time, was at the end of that chicane with my bag. I'd made up a protein uh, shake and I'd wrapped it, you know, make sure no one gets into it. You know, I'd wrap my protein shake. I had a, a, a bar of um, like an energy bar another bottle of water so by the time I'd gone through the um uh, radio it was first then down the line of all the press I'd get everything like literally I'm refueling <laughs> within 10 minutes <laughs> so I didn't care then where, what time I got back and had my meal and I think people underestimate the other things you have to do to be on form so your mindset your actual delivery, your focus on the track. It's all those other bits that contributed. And because it felt so good doing it and I was feeling so good, I just got that confidence around me that, do you know what? Go out there and run. Don't let anyone down. Don't let yourself down. And in the 1500, I can honestly say I never went out to win. I went out to run as good as I did in the 800. I've always had the theory, Kelly, that if you get it right for 800, then actually some may disagree with me on that. But if you get it right for 800, you get the basic speed endurance. And 800 is the toughest event on the track, I think, yeah. for, all sorts yeah. of, for all the reasons you've just explained. Then by and large, the 1500 meter follows. And I just sensed at that period 
that you were in that purple patch in a career where, you know, you just, you know, when you step out onto the track, you're just not going to lose. And worse than that, there are the competitors around you start thinking, well, I, I'm, I'm running for, for second or, or third place here. Sadly, it's not a period that lasts very long in your career. No. You know, <laughs> if, if you can hold it, hold it for, you know, even a few months at a time, then, then it's fantastic. I was just smiling when you mentioned Sally Gunnell because the next time you probably met Sally was when you won BBC Review of the Year at the end of that season and she was one of the Magnificent Seven. I've got the list here. It was Mary Rand, That's Mary right, yes. Anne Packer, Mary Peters, Tessa Sanderson, Sally herself and Denise oh, Lewis, yeah, Denise all Lewis. the uh, women that had won uh, track, t- track and field titles uh, in Olympic Games. That must have been an incredibly special moment to be serenaded by that lineup of talent. Oh, absolutely. I mean... You know, Anne Packer was the first British 800 metre uh, Olympic champion, yeah, you know, and she's saying something to you and you're just like, wow. And then obviously closer to time, um, Denise Lewis was a, a teammate of mine and so was Ali in my, um, sorry, so was Sally in my early days. Yeah. Um, but Sally actually had a more of a significance on me that she, than she even knew because at my first Commonwealth Games um, in 1994 in Victoria, Canada, uh, I was still in the military and we were all uh, sharing this big apartment and there's Sally Gunnell, you know, this Olympic champion Sally Gunnell from 1992 and world champion and world record holder and I'm in the same bloody apartment as her you know and she comes out from the shower you do have to pinch yourself on those occasions yeah and she comes out the shower and I'm so new into you know kind of the uh, Great Britain kind of team or the international scene and you know we're competing for England and she comes out the shower and she went and she went oh that was cold and I was like what were you doing she went oh I had a cold shower I was like why <laughs> I my love of cold and water is very well documented that I hate it um she comes out the shower and she went oh you know it really yeah you me. went on mission survival oh I nearly died as well I nearly drowned that's another story <laughs> mission survive oh my god the bear grills yeah Lily died anyway um so she comes out she says, oh, go in, it really flashes out your legs, blah, blah, blah. She went out and won the Commonwealth Games. I was like, sod that, I'm going in that shower. So I went in the shower, <laughs> had a cold shower and won the 1,500 metres. <laughs> Look, we, you know, in, in this wonderful podcast series, because it's an absolute honour to, to speak to all of you, um, I chatted to Phil Knight, the founding father of Nike the other day, and he described Nike as a 56 your overnight sensation. Now, the, the area I want to sort of slightly interrogate with you is that I'm sure that for those of us, you know, I'd, I'd watched you from the age of 14 or 15 coming through the ranks. There's nothing overnight about an athletics career that ends up with an Olympic title, two Olympic titles. Uh, but I'm guessing that your Athens appearance really and and what you achieved really did completely upend your world in a way that nothing previously uh, had done Uh, how did you deal with that well I suppose in a way I don't know if it's lucky or unlucky because now you know it's so different but we didn't have social media I mean uh, Facebook only started in 2004 so slightly different However, it was very meaningful because, you know, you come back into Great Britain, you know what it's like, you come back and everybody's, you know, loving the athletes that they've watched. And that was very special and very different. But what was so surreal about it was that, 
you know, I come back to the village that I'd literally lived all of my life and it was like I was this superstar, this kind of person that was now untouchable that had, you know, they'd forgotten that I was just this, you know, little scraggly girl that with an afro that used to run around the park in their thing. You know, suddenly you're propelled into, you know, kind of a world that's so unreal uh, in terms of your mindset. And I never competed in sport to have anything other than win my gold medal. I can honestly say, I, you know, I used the um, song If I Ain't Got You by Alicia Keys as my Olympic song and everything was about if I haven't got medals. I don't want glory, I don't want this, I don't want that, I just want my medals. And so when you come back to everybody knowing your name, like I had a homecoming parade in my village and what happened was is that this homecoming parade was set up by the council And my brother lives probably three, four miles away from me. And he came up to my mum's. I was living with my mum at the time because I just assumed I was going to go in the same roller coaster ride as you do. You know, you come back from the games. I've been injured. I'll get over it. I'll go back training. I just thought it was going to be like that. But I come back as a double Olympic champion. Anyway, at the set, the day that they were going to do this uh, big parade, um, my brother comes up and I could overhear him in the, the kitchen saying, oh, there's not many people down the town. But by the time... It had come. I'm coming on this bus in my village. We go all... It was crazy. I mean, people were jumping out of places. And, I remember. You know, and they, the final police report was 80,000 people. I mean, how? For just a cat girl, you know? It was so weird. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't long after that that you invited me to your school. Yes. And I remember walking in there. It was like, you know, well, it was celebrity status multiplied a thousand times. It was extraordinary. Kids hanging off wall bars and classroom, you know. Yeah, it was only Classroom walls. I mean, it was extraordinary. It really was, you know. And when you're swung around by Elton John at the Royal Variety Show, you know, you're just presented to like a girl band. As you do, As you do, you know. And he comes in and you're swung around and you're just like... What is going on? It's little things like that that become very surreal. But, you know, like I say, it's very different to the social media world. You know, you know, as an area changes, you know, you are an absolute hero. You know, kind of everybody around the world knew you and your biggest rival. <sighs> Yeah. Everybody knew you, but they knew from Who? TV. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> they knew you from TV and radio and papers. Yeah. You know, and that was the same for me. They knew me through TV, radio, and papers. It's very different now, isn't it? It is. It is entirely different, uh, and it, in a way that sort of segues nicely into an, an area that I know I, I'm I'm keen to understand a little bit more about. And I know you are very keen to, to, to talk about because you used the Athens platform as an opportunity to talk about mental health, some of your own uh, mental health issues. I'm guessing that platform gave you or, or, or just gave you permission to do that, but it was such an important platform, not just for the young athletes coming through those, those challenges, but for young people in, in all walks of life. Yeah, and people, to be honest, because um, so when I first talked about my mental health was in an autobiography like you do, and no one actually knew about anything that was I was going through happening, no one in sport. And I had to, I felt like the book that I wanted to write 
was to be as honest as I could about the sporting journey. So a lot about my life and how I grew up and everything and the sporting journey to the success, but also say the real side of that, that it's not all easy, you know, and it's hard and human and everything. And having had what I had was, you know, I mean, I I honestly say the biggest success of my Athens was actually coming through what I went through in 2003, you know, to come off the back of um, a breakdown, depression, becoming a self-harmer just before world championships um, and still standing on a rostrum uh, in silver uh, medal and no one knowing what I'm going through. And you might remember this chance, actually, and I don't really talk about this much. There was this chance where, because I'd started, I'd trained that year with Maria Matola and everyone was going, why, why are you, talk, you know, how, comes, how can you be training with Maria Matola? How can you be training with your rival? And there's all these innu- in, innuendo and these, these, you know, kind of things around, you know, you must have been running together. And in my head, when all the press is doing this and talking complete rubbish, I'm thinking you have no idea I'm going through right now and I was going through a breakdown I was going through depression I had been self-harming in the holding camp leading up to those world champs and all the others were so fickle about it but I didn't say a word because I didn't know how to we didn't talk about mental health so when I then won my two gold medals after getting the team around me Ali Rose Zara High Peters you know the Brian English everybody that I really trusted around me coming out and doing what I did which I believe is fate I believe I put everything into my life to do what I did and it was the first year in seven that I actually became the athlete I should have been for many many years um coming off the back of that writing my autobiography being very open and transparent it still wasn't really talked about and it was only in 2017 that I went on a tv show and um I was talking about you know kind of uh, they were just asking about health and depression and I started talking about it again it was almost like I'd never spoken about this and I was just like the reason is is you you weren't listening back then. People weren't listening. It was on the front of a newspaper and almost like, oh my God, how can a champion be that bad? Let's hide it. Otherwise it makes her look like she's not as good. And I thought, no, do you know what? It's my platform to now talk openly and because in life, it does not matter who you are, you can all struggle and most people hide the struggle, but they come out because they don't give up. They come out because they still believe in themselves and that's the only difference. Look, I, I read with great interest in advance of, of this podcast um, many of the things that you've talked about in mental health and I'm, I think it's incredibly candid and I know hugely helpful for people like yourself to be comfortable about talking about that. And there's one quote here that I think would, I'm sure, you would think that it's absolutely central advice. And and it's this quote, reach out to people you know. Uh, They would be distraught if they didn't know what you were going through. And I think that for for young people, I know you've created, uh, I mean, you've become a a mental health first aider. You've actually started, I'm not not sure where you've got to with this, but I know you're working on an app uh, to help people uh, come to terms with with some of those challenges. It's really become a central theme in your life now, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. Uh, you know, I always thought that, you know, when you're a kid and you've got dreams, that your destiny is that dream. And if you do it, that's it. But I actually believe, without sounding too sort of, ooh, uh, that um, that was almost like part, part of my journey and my destiny, my true destiny is how can I 
help and affect and change opinions of people through positive mindset but also through realism that you're a human first and then actually you're going to go through struggles and if I can inspire people through that that's what I try and do so the trust was set up for lots of different reasons and we help disadvantaged young people and obviously the athlete transition through the Dame Kelly Homes Trust but it's also now very apparent and especially during this time you know the mental health issues that we see in society and communities of disadvantaged young people so it's really become a thread through everything that I've either started or I do and then the app's called Elf at Work and it's because I stand on stage globally to you know hundreds or thousands of people sometimes and I tell them about my story but I feel like well how do you I can just talk and you know you would stand anyone any one of us especially in sport can stand on a stage and give real kind of stardust and inspiration but then we go and how do you actually then keep those messages going so I just formed this app that goes into the workplace and uh, only launched it in lockdown actually to first PLC and so I'm trying to get that out because it's got about mental health well-being and fitness and the two tools for helping your mental health are fitness being active any form of fitness and maybe something you enjoy and uh, communicating and talking effectively. And that is why I, I put this quote around the fact that I didn't tell anyone what was happening to me and they read it in a book. And my parents, my friends who I'd known all my life were devastated and not disappointed well, we in me. we had no idea. No. Kelly, we had no idea, me included. I mean, I, I thought I knew pretty yeah. much about everything about your athletics career but I had no idea that you were going through those traumas as well no and that's the thing and they were so disappointed but not disappointed in me like they were saying we were we would have been here to help you we just feel yeah. like we were powerless and I decided I couldn't tell you I didn't know how to but I always advocate to people we all have somebody that will listen and is there for you the moment you ask for help and I guess that sort of mutual support and that belief that, you know, you're always better as a team was drilled into you in your, your army years. I know you're incredibly proud uh, of your army career, which is, as I said in my opening remarks, you've now become honorary colonel of the Royal Corps Training Regiment. I mean, you must be proud as punch to have, to have ended up doing that. I mean, I don't, I think that's a, I think that's quite a unique title, isn't it, in 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 that sphere? Uh, yeah, so I was given that title um, at the end of 2018 and actually um, it had, we had, there was a change in army policy and it had to be signed off uh, by the Queen because I was the first person to ever be attached to a regular unit, um, a regular working unit as an honorary colonel. Normally you're attached to like a reserve is unit. So I was really proud of that first and foremost. And secondly, because of being proud of my nearly 10 year uh, career in the uh, military, that attachment back. And I do a lot on mental health um, with my role now as an honorary colonel I suppose the uh, the fun thing is is that you know I rock up now where I can have this undercut long hair on one side they can't say a thing <laughs> um, you know and I have I get saluted and be called ma'am I mean I was the one having to do that in my career so and, and the height of, and the height of the heels Kel as well <laughs> that's it <sighs> but actually in the first lockdown you set up um, military in motion which is a sort of you know, it's a, a friendly community of like-minded people who supported each other uh, during that period and, and t- taking part in some fairly devilish challenges. I did privately try a few myself. I, <laughs> I know how I felt towards the end of the day. 
T- tell me a bit more about your, uh, just a bit more about that and and this element of community that matters to you, doesn't it? it really, it's it's not just a word you use. It's it's what you live to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I feel like there's so many people in life generally in society all trying to be that best version of themselves, all have hopes and dreams. And some people just don't either have opportunity or just can't find that inner fire in their belly that we're very fortunate as athletes to have. And a lot of people want to keep fit um, or they think they, they need to keep fit and they want to be healthier. And so during lockdown, because I wasn't traveling all over the world and I've always been into my fitness and I'm a qualified PT and everything, I thought, oh, do you know what? I'll just do some sessions online. You know, it's the first time I've ever done it. I, you know, I wasn't really interested in doing it. Then, you know, you start getting the comments from people. This is so, this is helping me. You know, I'm isolated or I haven't trained since school. I'm overweight. You start hearing all of what people talk about you know their inhibitions how embarrassed they are all of those things and it just started building a momentum where I just said to people look you're on here I said right we're going to start going from Instagram story onto zoom I want to see you and then I said the only reason you can come on here is you turn your camera on and I said you know don't care about what anyone else thinks of you because they're not leading your life they're not living your life and it is built into something I never imagined would happen you know these people all become friends you know they're kind of virtual friends in a uh, you know real friends in a virtual world who are now starting when they can just to meet up and they're all from all over the country and actually um, I've got a few overseas as well and um, I love it I absolutely love it because it's not something I'm earning money from. You know, it just pays itself. If somebody does a 5K race, they buy a medal, you know, the medal's spent. I absolutely love that I am, and by their words, transforming their lives because they've never felt so good about themselves in both body and mind. And I tell them, and the biggest thing I do do, I do have my army and my athletics head on when I'm coaching them because I'm like, you're not here to work out, you're here to train. <laughs> So, and by training, yeah. you train hard. I want a full commitment from yeah. you in body and mind. Well, I have seen some of these. <laughs> I have seen some of these exchanges. Slightly worrying. <laughs> Listen, you, you have a, an interesting upbringing. You were brought up in a council estate in Tunbridge. What were some of the challenges you confronted navigating your way as a young athlete through the Byzantine world of, of athletics and, and making your way through the sport? Um, well, I think the appropriate thing to talk about at the moment is, you know, when people are talking about Black Lives Matter and whether yeah. that during sport was an issue to me or wasn't an issue to me. And I think the way I kind of try to explain it is that there's culture and there's upbringing, you know, life yeah. generally. And I was brought up in Kent with a white mother, a white stepdad, white siblings. I went to white schools. Everyone around me was white. I had no no other knowledge of anything. And my biological father, um, his family were in London, they're, they were Jamaican. And but right, I had okay. no connection at all with him. No framework of reference. Nothing at all. Yeah. So culturally... I can, I'm, I'm white, you know, culturally, I don't know any different, you know, so people can look at people and put every person in the same box. And this is some of the conversations I've been having recently to corporates around the Black Lives Matter is that what you have to do is remember that 
When you are talking or you're looking or you're whatever at white people, you don't ever categorise white people. You just, you kind of, they're all these people and whatever. Whereas when you talk to people of colour or people who are black or whatever, it's almost like everyone's yeah. under the same umbrella. Um, yeah. But I don't know what an African heritage is, a, a Jamaican heritage is. I don't know. I, I just don't know it. And so did I get... Was I bullied at school? No, because I end up having the attitude, and I don't know where it came from when I was very young, that if I'm different, I'm unique, and that means I stand out, and that means I'm not... Every, everything I know about you, Kelly, is you're not an obvious bully victim. You're not an obvious, <laughs> going to be an obvious victim of bullying. That would be a bad career move for anybody. <laughs> well, hopefully when I was younger, it was just my smile that let, let, let it go. Now it's probably with my army hat, head on. <laughs> Um, You know, I never had that. So I remember in athletics, and I will say this because it's only really come, you know, at the age that I am now, which I'm really mortified by, but 39 plus plus, um, I have to start... (laughs) I have to start putting in questions in my mind that I've never, ever had to think about when people are asking about this situation because I've Mm. just lived life as I am. I'm just me, Kelly. You know, I don't care. I just get on with it. It's only because there's more conversation I've had to really think about maybe my ignorance with this conversation as well as other people's around people do get uh, bullied for their colour, just for the colour of the sin. They don't even know who they got brought up by who their parent their heritage is what their culture yeah. is they're just getting bullied because yeah. of the color of their skin now i'm dame kelly holmes so maybe i'm not but if i think back have i actually probably i have been um probably i have had jobs not given to me circumstances where i've had problems with people because of the color of my skin or maybe other things but i have to think about that and i do remember in athletics uh, Denise Lewis, uh, Michelle Griffiths, like lots of, uh, of the uh, older athletes that are around. I remember once, we were juniors, we were um, all together and uh, we were sitting around this table and everybody was uh, either black or mixed race. And I'm sitting there and it's all going around one by one, one by one. How do you feel? How do you feel? And they were all going to me, what do you think then? Because you've got white parents and and I thought oh my god and I felt like I stood out like a sore thumb because you know I don't have any anything that they were talking about I just didn't get and it almost made me feel a bit kind of intimidated that I wasn't part of them you know I felt separate even though I'm sitting there the same color so what people have to end of this conversation really is for me to say you know, in sport, the best thing about sport, especially athletics, so let's take it away from football and things, but in athletics, I don't believe there's much discrimination that I've ever, ever witnessed to do with colour, culture, uh, ethnicity. Kelly, Kelly I, I, right? I would go further. I, I yeah. can't think of another sport where there's more reason to celebrate diversity yeah. than, in, yeah. than in athletics. I mean, the powerhouses... Yeah. The individual competitors, the powerhouses of our sport demonstrate exactly why we are so diverse. And, you know, it's we, we are a colourblind sport and thank God we are. Yeah, and I love that. And maybe not even the colourblind, I think we should be colour focused to recognise yeah, that, that we're all so different 
but we all live together and we all do what we're trying to do, be the best that we can be at our sport. And that's what I love about athletics. And that's where, when I have a reference point, I do talk about athletics and that being a really positive uh, part of my life to be part of. What, what words of inspiration? Uh, look, I've heard nothing but words of inspiration from you <laughs> during our conversation. But what if, if I asked you to synthesise a few words of inspiration for a young athlete that is, I hope, listening to this podcast, what would they be? Um, I'm trying to think of some of the... I kind of, I do all these different quotes and they're just things that come out of my head whenever. But I, there's some things that I put in there. I put, um, those that give up will never make it and those that carry on just might do something incredible. And for me, if only it's too late and just always believing in yourself can take you further than you ever really thought you could get. I'm writing them down now. Okay. <laughs> they, they, they'll, they'll even work for a sort of 60-something. Let me just take you to something. I mean, we started on a, on a point of topicality, COVID-19. It's been the great disruptor. Um, athletes last year had to come to terms very abruptly and rather brutally that the games that they thought they were preparing for. And I'm sure most people think that you only sort of wake up in an Olympic year and think, oh, you know, the games are in July. What people tend to forget is training blocks are often built around an Olympic Games five, six, seven years earlier, if you're working with the types of coaches that you and I were lucky enough to work with. What advice would you give now to the athletes that have lost that season? We managed to get a few races towards the end of the year, Diamond League and some Continental Tour. But what advice would you give athletes going into the coming preparation phase, knowing that no, they missed their big chance last year. And how do they hold it together over the course of the winter months? Um, so just readjust, treat it like it was an injury. Uh, treat it like you've got another opportunity and a chance that maybe um, you would not have got. Take the positives out of it. What can you do to be better than the year that you may have had? Um, I feel like sometimes I have to talk to different sets because you've got the young athletes that have still got many many years to perform and you know this is just a blip in their career that those that take it like that as a um a setback but work through it in a positive um realm you know maybe changes that they could have made maybe things that actually they've got more time to work on definitely put it as a positive to start with also realize that if you do get to those games and you're lucky enough to still be in the team you're one of the lucky ones because there's so many that had to retire after this year this is their last olympic games they're ever going to get to they can't last for another four years you know so actually those athletes have to kind of have in their head that they've still got an opportunity to perform they've still got an opportunity to do good and what we have to remember is that we have a four-year cycle and there's a championship every year so this is almost like every year should still be another big championship that you're getting ready for whether it's a world championship or europeans or commonwealth games it's just another year so yes you might have missed this year but it doesn't mean you miss having that focus it doesn't mean you stop believing in the journey doesn't mean you don't refocus reset and go again you know it's just a year that was really unfortunate but 
There's nothing you could have done about it. It was out of your control. So you just have to pick yourself up. And the ones that are going to succeed next year are the ones that get through this period the best. The ones that have picked themselves up, just brushed it off and gone, okay, I'm ready to go again. Yes, disappointment. You can't do anything about it, but you can do everything about getting ready for next year. Kelly, I think there's fantastic read across, not just for athletes that have been dispossessed from their year, but for young people who have been studying, where schools have been closed, universities have been closed, and people that have really struggled in, in their own employment areas. I think that's, that's a great piece of advice. I've had to romp through this interview quickly. I mean, I would love to have spent hours chatting to you, and I'm lucky enough I know there will be those occasions when I can. But I've run through a lustrous list of achievements. Is there anything left that you, I mean, it might be absolutely out of left field. It doesn't have to be athletics or, you know, crazy challenges. Is there anything privately that you, that's left that you would just love to, to do? Yeah, I suppose you're always trying to, it was a weird word, but reinvent yourself, really kind of um, prove who you are. And all I wish for is that whatever, is out there in society if they can see me as a person that can have a hopefully an impact on whoever it is that I'm working with or involved with, that I can help them with mindset change, help them with positivity, help them with growth mindset and, you know, believing in yourself. And I don't think that doesn't matter what industry it is, to be honest with you. Um, so for me, it's about just hopefully continuing to do what I do, um, and, you know, stop people, maybe people only see me as the athlete that won two gold medals and has achieved a lot of other things. But, you know, I feel like um, I hope I can impact and make long lasting impacts on people and whatever sector that is. And that's I just need more exposure to continue to do that so that I can reach more people. Colonel Holmes, believe me, you've made that impact. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSM 